we used to actually write like a three-ring binder on like, here's how you deploy uh, an app into production, right? Because we get to the point where these three-year release cycles where we do a feature no one would ever use. In these long cycles, you're like, all right, we're going to go carve the statue out of marble and it's going to take a while. And you just really can't see the shape until you're done, right? But I got to be able to give them changes quickly. I've got to say, all right, you gave us this feedback. How does this feel? Is this the right experience or not? Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harva, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. So what do you like least about Docker? I mean, I think the thing that's been the most challenging as we've worked with Docker and the Docker community is really bringing Windows into that. And that up front was, was a bit of a hard sell, right? Like, these are people who are very, very, very Linux-centric. Um, and explaining to them, like, Windows is different. And it's okay that Windows is different. Uh, it's a different way of thinking about some parts of the system. But we can make the experiences the same. Um, that was definitely a, a, a bit of a challenge, right? And, and because of that, we've had to think differently about how we've had to work. But it took some definite work between both sides to kind of get over that. Um, and I think there's still some, uh, some folks in that community that are a little nervous about it and don't really like that they feel like Windows is, is making them dumb down Docker. Now would be a great time to introduce yourself because we're uh, recording from Microsoft Build in Seattle. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm Taylor Brown. My role is uh, I'm the Windows server team and I'm a PM for our strategy, for developer strategy. Uh, and as part of that, I own the container work. So I've owned all the work that we've done to bring Windows Server containers and Hyper-V containers to, uh, to Windows and all of the, the work we've done in the Docker community to bring that to, to Windows as well. I think we largely skew in the sort of uh, Linuxy world. Uh, can you tell us what, what, is, uh, what is Docker like on Windows and, and what, how do you use it and, and why? Yeah, I mean, it's actually exactly the same as it is on Linux. You, you start a container by saying Docker run, but instead of saying like Ubuntu, you say Windows Server Core or Nano Server. You know, when we really break down what Docker is, it's a management tool set. It's a framework for running containers, for managing containers. Um, and when we started working on containers originally, the first kind of meeting we had with Docker, I flew down there all happy with, here's the API we're going to build. Like, <laughs> do you guys want to make your Docker like thing, the CLI, whatever, work on, on Windows? Um, and, you know, Solomon got kind of excited and said like, you know, this is all open source. You guys could just make it work. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that was kind of a hard deal for us for, at first. This was like kind of right at the point when Windows was starting to dabble in open source a little bit. And I was like, what does it mean for us to go work on an open source project as the kernel base team? Um, and we got over that, and we started working on it. Ultimately, our goal became, like, let's make this feel just like it does on Linux, uh, but with the, the Windows semantics kind of plumbed in. How did that meeting happen in the first place? Like, why were you flying down to San Francisco? So we, the Azure team had already been meeting with Docker a little bit. Um, and I was actually down there for another conference. I was down there for PuppetConf um, when we first met with them. And I was like, well, what's the harm? I'll spend a day. I'll go over. We'll talk to them. Maybe they'll want to put this Docker CLI on top of, of this Windows API that we were building. And you know, that would be great. It'd make it easy for users who were using that to, to just keep using it, right? And been in Microsoft for a long time. I've been on Windows for like 13 years. I'm kind of used to, oh, we walk into a partner and we're like, hey, do you want to do something with us? They're like, yes, what do we have to do? <laughs> um, 
this was a very different experience. It was like, yeah, it's all open. You can just go <laughs> at it. That was a very, very interesting experience for us. I so you use, use Docker on Windows to run images of Windows Server. Is that right? Yeah, that's what we have today. Now we just, like two weeks ago at DockerCon, mm -hmm. showed Linux containers running natively on Windows as well. Oh, nice. Okay, so yeah, well, that was my next question. Was like now, like, yeah. yeah and and can, can Windows containers run on Linux and on Mac? No, uh, they okay. can't. Not at this point, anyway. Because the way that we, we need a shared kernel. We need some kernel yeah, to run yeah, against, yeah, right? Yeah. So the way we actually brought Linux across is by using our Hyper-V technology. Right, right. So we built this container type called a Hyper-V container originally. Now we call it a Hyper-V isolated container. Mm -hmm. So what that does is it spins up a special VM that we built just to run a container. Um, and originally that only ran Windows kernels, but now we're extending that to run Linux kernels. And so we've got Red Hat and SUSE, Docker, of course, uh, and Canonical all itching to, to give us a Yeah, I, I feel like I read somewhere that like Ubuntu ships by default in Windows 10 or something along those lines. Uh, did I misunderstand that? Yeah, uh, so we've got this experience in Windows 10 called WSL, the Windows Subsystem for Linux. Okay. And that allows us to run like a bash prompt and apt-get and all of your traditional Linux tools. Yeah. And it, is, is it the Ubuntu apt-get? Like a, which yeah. repositories yeah. are you pulling from? Yep. It's, it is Ubuntu. Okay, okay. Now today in the keynote, we announced that uh, we're bringing a couple other distros to that party. Mm -hmm. So SUSE is going to be coming along, uh, and then we're working with uh, working on Fedora as well. So that we expect that to come along pretty soon. So you'll actually be able to choose on Windows mm -hmm. whether you want to use Ubuntu uh, or SUSE or Fedora. And we announced earlier this week we're going to bring all that to server as well. All right, so and this is all this is all using Docker, or is it using this, uh, the Hyper-V thing that, that's like similar to how you run Docker? It's actually completely different. Okay. The WSL work is all done through basically kernel emulation. Mm -hmm. So we, we emulate all of the Linux syscalls and turn those into the corresponding Windows calls um, so that it actually runs L-formatted binaries. They're exactly the same image from, uh, from Linux on Windows. Now, that works really well for like scripted environments, development environments, those kind of things. But in production, that causes us some challenges. Because like, if we don't have that emulation done just right, in production, we're going to have a hard time emulating that. So for production environments, that's where we use the Linux uh, isolation technology. That allows us to run a real Linux kernel, the stock kernel from whichever distro you choose, uh, to get you the exact same environment that you're going to be running in production. So it's a kind of a great marriage of the two technologies. So the, the, the other question I had is we were talking to Jeffrey Snover earlier. Yeah. And, and he, was, he was telling us about, about PowerShell and, and how it's all different to Bash and that sort of thing. And so I'm curious, like, is you know, Docker that, that runs on, on Windows, is it like a, a PowerShell-y like structured data that can be consumed by other things? Or is it like... So we made an open source PowerShell module that wraps the Docker REST interface. Oh, interesting. So even on Linux, in fact, we demoed that at uh, LinuxCon two years ago. You can actually run PowerShell on Linux to manage Docker if you wanted to. Mm. The world is getting crazy. The world is crazy. It's turtles all the way down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, what we found, though, is that most of our users just use the Docker CLI on Windows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, what they're yeah. familiar with. They're comfortable with That's it. That's what all the docs say. Um, and yeah, it's kind of what we've, we've tooled around. But just being able to open source that PowerShell module and get that feedback. And so, so does that module like parse the output of the Docker CLI and then convert it into the yeah. PowerShell data, or how does it? It uses the REST interfaces on. Oh, the on REST interface, you said yeah, this. Okay, on top yeah, of Docker. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Um, yeah, we just snapped to that. And what actually became really valuable out of that is that we took the, uh, there was an open source wrapper for the Docker REST interface in .NET. Mm -hmm. 
we brought that into to Microsoft. We got the original author of it, donated it to, to us, so we started maintaining that. That has been used a lot. Okay. Um, so while the actual project is kind of stagnated a little bit, the, the middle pieces of that have been adopted pretty heavily. I mean, I, I don't know if you see it yet, but is, is the potential that you see here that, that, that people are going to run like fleets of Windows servers with Kubernetes and Swarm and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, we're seeing it already. Okay. Um, so we talked to uh, DockerCon. We had a couple good customers come up and talk about their experiences already. Uh, Northern Trust just moved a bunch of applications over, mm -hmm. running them in containers. Uh, Microsoft IT just finished their 20th application that they ported over already. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those are just taking an existing app, moving it straight into a container, no code change at all, mm -hmm. and getting rid of an older system and consolidating systems together. What we're now starting to see is that people are starting to modernize those apps. So they're actually starting to break them up and turn them into smaller microservices. At DockerCon we showed the, the production version of Swarm uh, running, so we can actually have a, a Docker data center uh, managed environment of Windows and Linux hosts side by side under the same management framework with the same container images kind of flowing back and forth. And so now a developer really can just kind of pick the best image for their job, whether it's Linux or Windows, and marry them together. What's driving this? I mean, that's a great use case that Northern Trust, like what's, what's, what's uh, propelling them to go down that path? So I think we're seeing two things happen um, a lot. One, there's a ton of legacy code out there, um, especially in the Windows environments. Like people have built WCF apps, Windows services, there's thousands and thousands of them uh, that they've got running on, on servers that are really not very well managed. It's hard to redeploy them. The deployment binder is gone. Mm -hmm. right? like, those, like a physical binder? Oh yeah. For, I, <laughs> some people will remember those. I certainly do. Like we used to actually write like a three ring binder on like here's how you deploy a, an app into production, right? Um, and we'd sit down in the deployment room and like walk through it with a piece of paper and pencil and make sure we got it all right. Like, those got lost. And so they don't even know how to redeploy their app. Wow. And they're afraid. It's like if that server mm -hmm. goes away, like we don't know what to do. Um, wow. Much less make a code change. So, you know, everyone's uh, afraid. Now, if we can get it into a container, we can get it redeployable, then that fear of making that code change just kind of starts to melt away because I can roll back. And so now all, the, all of a sudden that microservice architecture, it's possible. It's not going to happen overnight. I'm going to have to break it up over time, but I've given you hope. I've given you hope to move forward. How, how common is that? How can you lose the binder? It's pretty common. You'd think it would like, be stapled somewhere, like, do not lose this binder. Well, and then like, the person who stapled it left, and the person mm -hmm. who cleaned out their office thought it was just trash and threw it away. The ninth Windows update that they took five years ago changed something, and someone went in and hacked the registry and made it work again, and that person's gone or didn't document it or sent an email to someone to put it in something and didn't. You know, all of the history happens, right? Mm -hmm. um, and these, these systems have just been made to keep working. When they're being converted to microservices, are people going like full 12-factor app on them, like stopping them writing to disk and, and all this sort of thing? You know, a lot of those start to happen. So what we start to see is like, all right, we'll take the monolith and we'll break out one piece at a time. So maybe we break out the, uh, the authentication library. We make that its own microservice or the logging functionality or something like that. And our guidance to people is try to go down the right road when you do that. So make that microservice consume and produce its own data. Give it its own data store. Don't go write it back into the same SQL server as with everything else. But if you can't, you know, if that's just really not possible, it's still valuable to break it out. It's better than nothing. The Linux world, there, there's this prevailing 
let's say best practice, and I, I think it's not, it's supposed to be not the only practice, but like, you know, the, the direction in which you're going, to have only one process running in a, um, mm -hmm. um, in a, in a Docker container. Yeah. Um, my, my view of, of, the, of, a, of a Windows machine is that, is that there's, you know, there's always like hundreds of processes and things running. So it, does this change in, in Windows Server? Is, is, it, is it more the, the one process, or is, is it just like more Windows-y sort of way? I mean, there's all Windows has always had a different architecture in terms of we've moved a lot of things into user mode. Mm -hmm. um, I call them system processes. Yeah. So you know, I think of kind of a blank machine, something that's just booted up and has nothing else running on it, um, as just being system processes and then uh, the kernel. And and even in there, we have on server core, I think we have 18 processes running. On nano server, we're down to six, and we're refactoring that even further. Mm -hmm. We've what, what are the six? I, I'm really asking, like, is there a Windows update daemon in this somewhere? Yeah, it's like you seem pretty <laughs> determined to get an answer. There was, and it's gone. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> we just removed it from, uh, from Nano Server nice. uh, going forward. So we're starting to make Nano Server more and more of kind of that. Feels a lot more like a Linux instance mm -hmm. in that it's optimized for a container. We're optimizing a lot of that work so that it's in that workflow. So Windows update's gone. You pull a new container image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're removing processes that aren't necessary, like all of the WMI processes for management are gone. Because mm -hmm. you don't manage inside the container, you manage right, of course. the outside, right? Uh, but it's taking us some time to get that refactoring in. And one of the things I'm really excited about now is that we get to do that faster. So we're shipping, we're going to start shipping builds once a week. We're putting builds out through our insider program this summer nice. of Windows Server every week. Mm -hmm. We went from six months between a preview and about three years between a release mm -hmm. to Every week we're going to ship a new a new build out. A new is that a new release? And a new release every six months. A uh, new release every six months. Okay. What drove the decision to do that? A lot of it was getting feedback from customers. So as we went through the the technical previews, especially from the developer side, as we started working with developers and having passion for our developers again, and <laughs> containers. <laughs> again. Um, yeah. Well, I feel like we really did lose that for a while. Mm -hmm. um, it's been my charter now the, is to go the, figure the bomber out. Bomber years. Well. It was just that period of time when virtualization was king and the IT mm -hmm. pro was king. Right, 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 right. And right. you know, we kind of we had .NET and we felt good about that, um, and we just didn't. We weren't really thinking about what's the next thing for the developer. Um, and in the meantime, they were finding their own next thing. Yeah. So as we've regained that and started talking to to customers again and developers, like their feedback is awesome, but I got to be able to give them, you know, changes quickly. Mm -hmm. I've got to say, all right, you gave us this feedback. How does this feel? Is this the right experience or not? Um, and in order to, to do that, I've got to get builds out quickly. And at the same time, we saw the feedback we were getting from the Windows 10 Insider program and how quickly they were able to respond to feedback. You put out something and you're like, I don't know if it's right or not, but I'm going to try it. And you ask people if they like it and they tell you, no, that's terrible. Go back to the drawing board <laughs> or yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Um, you should do more of that. I don't have to guess anymore. I just get to, to experiment. What did you have to change organizationally to get to the, I mean, like from a three-year release to every week yeah. is, is a massive change. One of the biggest changes that I think we're, we went through is resetting the expectations. So everybody came in with their feature list like it was going to be a three-year release, right? And they're like, all right, we're going to go redo all of this and we're going to redo all of that and all these new features and like they obviously don't fit. And you have to walk people back through and say, like, no, we, we've got to do this in smaller and smaller pieces. So that feature that you want to build sounds great. What is the small version of that? What is the first step in that? And then how do we validate that we're on the right road? So the real nice thing about not doing it in these long chunks, if you start off on something and you're going in the wrong direction, you can figure that out before you finish <laughs> it. Because we get to the point where with these three-year release cycles where we do a feature, 
no one would ever use. Because uh. at six months, we made a choice with the best information we had available, and we went the wrong way. And then we built a feature that's just kind of languishing there for forever. So this gives us that opportunity to course correct and say like, oh, nope, that was the wrong, the wrong path. Like, let's shift and, and move back over. We've done, what, four, five podcasts today? Um, and the amount of times that, that the people have said the word validate yeah. is like really, really high. The, 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 there's a whole load of like, we're talking to the customers. And it, I, I don't know what the Windows world was like in, in 2003, um, but it, it's, you know, it, it certainly didn't feel like there was a whole lot of talking to customers back in the, in the, the dark old days. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the 2008 period was the time when I really felt it. Mm -hmm. um, I was actually on our quality team at that point. I was doing testing, mm -hmm. and it was it was painful. Like we'd build an entire experience without ever finding out from a real person is yeah. this something they wanted and we're going to buy. Well, so let me let me push back on that for a second. I mean, the the pushback is always like if I asked, you know, if I asked somebody if they wanted a car, they would say I just want a faster horse. Yeah. So, yeah. so how did you break free of that mindset of like it was actually good to talk to people? Well, I mean, because there's the cult of Steve Jobs of like, and you do have to balance it, right? If you ask people every time, like, do you want an X or do you want Y, they'll be like, well, I would like both, please. <laughs> um, and so, I, you know, I do think you have to build some part of it out and and see with yourself, like, how does this actually work, and then and then sit with them and understand, is this what you wanted? Why isn't it what you wanted? And that why question is always the important one. You know, it's not do you want X or Y. It's here are some options. Like, why why is this one better than that one for you? Why do you think this is the appropriate you know, choice, because you find as you go through that, sometimes they haven't thought about a different way of doing it. And if you jump to that conclusion and say, oh, well, we've got a better idea, you've gone off of the rails again, you've got to then revalidate with them and say, what if we did it this other way? And then when you see their eyes light up and say like, oh yeah, that would be really cool, you know you've got something. So, so, so when you were in that, you know, that, that, that six month period of like, we're building something and no, no customer ever sees it, how did you delude yourselves into that? And I, I, I'm asking this so that, so that people can, can sort of recognize themselves in it, I hope. I mean, I think you know, we always started out with the best of intentions. So yeah. we'd go out and we'd get a customer list and we'd go talk to a bunch of people and we'd look at our competition and we'd build a feature set and say, all right, to compete with this competitor, we need X, Y, and Z, because that's on our, our checklist, right? And the salespeople told us we needed this in order to compete with that. And you know, this customer had these bugs, and we really want to fix those. And boy, this new feature's coming out, this new architecture, whatever. And you bring all that together, and you go, all right, here's the big pile of stuff we have to mm. do. And you're not like dogfooding it or something like that on the way. Well, in these, in these long cycles, you don't really have anything that's worth dogfooding yet. Yeah, because yeah, you're yeah. like, all right, we're going to go carve the statue out of marble, and it's going to mm. take a while. And you just really can't see the shape until you're done, right? Yeah. Um, and the worst, you know, the easy failure there is that while you're carving it, the world changes around you. Yeah. Especially now, right? Mm -hmm. There was a point in time when six months was not that long. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty long now. You know, so if you don't check back every now and then and say like, are we still carving the right thing? You're going to go off the rails. And then as you go through that, all the macro decisions are the ones that kill you. It's not the, are we building the right feature ones? Like, it's the, are we building it the right way? Are we exposing this in a way that a user can actually understand how to use it? Are we exposing it in a way that makes sense to them? Um, or are we building something that, because we're so familiar with it, we're so close to it, that we get it, but no one else will. I have built those features. I've built features that were so complex that no human would ever understand them. The only people who understood them were the seven people who built it mm -hmm. and, and the people who architected it. Well, I, I think you fall in love with your own features 
and you start to design them, and then you're like, oh, but I need this other layer, and then it's very hard to let go of them. Right, it is. And, and it makes sense to you, and you're like, I understand, I get it, why, why can't other people understand it? And I think when you can do these shorter cycles and you can layer things with people's feedback on them, uh, you know, sometimes it's a little disappointing. Like, I built something, and I don't understand why people think it's the wrong approach. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd rather have that macro disappointment and be able to respond to it and fix it than the big disappointment of, oh, wow, we invested six years of someone's time in this thing, and like, no one's using it, right? Like, I feel personally accountable to our engineering team to make sure that they're doing the most impactful work possible. And you know, every now and then, we're going to have to have a conversation of, sorry, I steered us in the wrong direction. We got some feedback. We need to go change that. That's a much easier conversation when it's a couple weeks worth of work than, yeah, you know, that whole vacation you had to cancel in order to get this feature <laughs> done. And, you know, those, that, that late night and that weekend that we had to work. Uh, yeah. Your kid's soccer game that you missed. Right, yeah. Uh. You know, tell Timmy I'm sorry. Like, we <laughs> didn't, you know. It is Timmy, right, not Tommy. Yeah. You know, it's just like, that's a terrible place to be. So I, I, I like what you said about the, the world changing around you. And the, the one thing I'm, I'm very curious about in, in, in the Docker world is, you know, where, where is this whole thing going, right? The Docker seems to change all the time. Mm -hmm. How people use Docker changes all the time. It seems right now that Kubernetes is, is sort of like the, the killer app in, in, in the Docker world, at least in my mind. So I, I, I'm curious, you know, wh wh where do you think this whole, this whole Docker and DevOps movement is sort of going? I mean, I think the, the core Docker experience hasn't changed uh, a ton. Um, the orchestration space has been hot for a while and it's going to continue to be hot for a little while. Uh, we definitely see a lot of interest in Kubernetes. We see a lot of interest in, um, in service fabric. We're seeing a lot of interest in Docker data center. It just depends on the customer, but we definitely see a lot of Kubernetes interest. I think that's a lot of, to do with the way people are thinking about software development now and breaking things down into smaller pieces. And, and there's some value in the way that the Kubernetes community has kind of thought about that. I continue to, to advise people I still think there's going to be more orchestrators before there's going to be fewer orchestrators. I think there's at least going to be one or two more that are going to pop in. Around the uptick, you think? Yeah. And, and then I think there's going to be a bunch that die off. And at the same time, we're seeing all of the move towards serverless and yep. functional programming and all of those start to, to come into the, to play. And what I expect to see is I think we're going to see a mix. I think we're going to see a lot of people who go, okay, what is the right layer for this particular part of my code? Um, and maybe for, for some of it's paths, then for some of it it's going to be running uh, traditional VMs, some of it maybe containers, and then some of it's going to be functions and more serverless yeah. uh, compute. It, it would certainly be an interesting world if, if the, the major impact of, of Docker was that it allowed people move existing loads into the sort of a containerized world or like a, let's say a cloudy world, but actually all the new developments ended up on something like serverless. Yeah. So we're certainly allowing people to move their code around a lot easier. That's yeah, been one yeah. of the huge benefits, right? Whether they want to move to the cloud now or they think they might want to move someday or they're afraid of getting locked into one cloud or another, yeah. um, that's been pretty powerful. And I think we are going to see a lot of people experimenting with what is the right layer to build that next piece of the app in? So we launched uh, the functions on-prem yeah. um, this week as well. So now I can actually run an Azure function using a, a container on Windows on my laptop. Uh, not only can I harvest all that compute power that's around, but that means I can actually have an entire environment that is really completely disconnected from Azure using um, both functional programming as well as containers side by side. As we move into more microservice frameworks, whether it's Service Fabric or whatever other uh, microservice framework, that's a really interesting option for a lot of new development as well. 
Um, and then there's always this, you know, the illusion of, well, what parts of it should just be passed? Like, do I really even need to worry about it? Or can I just like sling up a website and let whatever cloud provider I choose run it? Um, and you know, I, I think we're gonna see a lot of hybrid uh, around that. I think we're gonna see a lot of people start to, to build their new apps in the right way for whatever that, that goal state is. And they're less worried about the lock-in because those front-end pieces, yeah. they get rewritten pretty often anyway. Uh, they're smaller than they ever used to be. Um, it's the middle tier and the back ends that are really, really important for them. Any more, any more sort of uh, directions you think in, in future of Docker? I mean, I think you're going to continue to see them uh, and, and us as long as well as them continue to reach out to more and more development scenarios. So as we bring Linux containers over to, to Windows, we just had a really good meeting this week on what does that actually mean in some of these broader scenarios? Like, hey, I'm a dev, I'm sitting down at Visual Studio, and I'm building a container. Is that a container that's going to run on Linux or Windows? Well, what if it's .NET Core and it runs the same on Windows and Linux? Which mm. container do I build that for? Interesting. You know, mine starts to explode. Well, maybe it should be both. Well, what about if it's a multi-stage build? Can I use a Windows container to build Linux or a Linux container to build a Windows image? That's kind of interesting. Um, how do I specify that? How do I think about that? Um, how do all of these experiences start to, to come together? I mean, containers are still super early. We talked with a, a large retailer this week. They want to roll out containers to 70,000 locations this in the next year. Mm. Wow. Like, that'll be their back end for every location they have. Right. Because today they have to run two physical machines with VMs on them, and they're running like two or three VMs each. And the update to that means they have to push an entire new VHD down to that store over some you know, dial-up, sub-dial-up connection in some cases, right? What they want to do is publish a new container image out and have every store just pull that container image down automatically. That's a huge shift for them. Yeah. That's a really cool use case too. What surprised you most at your time at Microsoft? You know, I think how much the company continues to grow and shift, even for a large company. So when I started 13 years ago, I started as a developer. Um, like that was my, my day job was come in, write code. And it was a very different company than it is now. I worked on very different projects. I worked on the Microsoft smartwatch at one point. <laughs> um, is that a smartwatch? It is not a smartwatch. <laughs> it is a new smartwatch, which was a great project. It didn't really work out, but it was still a lot of fun. And we actually learned a lot doing it. But it, just seeing how much the company grew and shifted between then and now, and how fast it's changing even now, uh, it just blows my mind. Um, for a large company to, to move as quickly as, as Microsoft has, um, it's pretty, pretty inspiring. Yeah, it's, it's been really great to have you come by. Thanks for coming. Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks so for much. having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of CircleCI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Thank you.